0: Well, I wonder what you make of the devil. I wonder what you make of the devil. For some people, you know, he's never to be named because he's either too scary or too silly. For other people, he's the focus of rapt attention and curiosity. For others, he's just a mythical figure used to scare people into doing good. For others, he's the excuse for all the wrong they do. I wonder, though, what you make of the devil and demons and unclean spirits and the like. It's certainly important that we make something of it all. It's important important that we make something of it all. Peter Bolt, in uh, his excellent and recent uh, book called Living with the Underworld, A really excellent book that I've put the details on the bottom of your outline there. Peter suggests three reasons why it's important for us to understand the underworld, the realm of the devil uh, and demons and unclean spirits. Three reasons why it's really important we understand these things. Firstly, because it's such an increasingly part of our contemporary culture. And just have to look at our TV shows really to see that, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to the Ghost Whisperer to Charmed. And our movies more and more depict these underworld characters. The people that we rub shoulders with have an increasing fascination with spiritual realities. That's the first reason why we should understand these things, make something of them. Second, the second reason is that the underworld is increasingly part of the contemporary Christian scene as well. But sadly, in the Christian scene, it's often misguided and unhealthy and unhelpful. And so we need to understand it properly and rightly. And thirdly, we need to understand the underworld, the realm of the devil and demons and so forth, because it just keeps on poking its way into the pages of the Bible. Certainly pokes its way onto the pages of the Bible, the bit of the Bible we're looking at tonight, doesn't it? I need to say, look, we won't be doing tonight an in-depth study of all things dark and spiritual, but I really would, if you're interested, heartily commend this book to you. But we will be seeing together tonight, we will be seeing the message at the heart of the Bible concerning these things. We'll be seeing together tonight the most important thing the Bible has to say about the devil and demons and unclean spirits and the like. And I can tell you the most important thing the Bible says in just three words. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So before we uh, dive into our passages, let me pray. Make sure you've got your Bible open at Matthew 12, because uh, we're going to look at it fairly closely. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin. I need to mention two quick mistakes on the bulletin. One's obvious. I've got the numbers wrong, okay. There should be two number twos. There should be a point two and a point three and maybe a point four. I can't remember. And uh, more importantly, the last one says, he who should... Not be feared, there shouldn't be a question mark and hopefully by the end of the talk you'll see why the question mark should not be there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to uh, look at your scripture together again. Father, please humble us tonight before you and your word. Father, it's such a great privilege to be able to do this together. Look carefully at the Bible and seek your truth. And Father, we pray that once more tonight you would reveal the truth about Jesus to us, please. Especially, fathers, who come to this uh, sort of a topic of the devil and demons and so forth, there is lots and lots of confusion about that. Just give us a really crisp, true clarity. And help us to be astounded by Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Point one on your outline. And our passage tonight begins with an astonishing act. If you look at your outline, you see that there's lots of astonishment. But our tonight begins, our passage tonight begins with an astonishing act. Let me read it to you from verse 22 of chapter 12. Let me, let me go. Here we go. Ready? Then they brought him, that's Jesus, then they brought Jesus a demon possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Okay, it's an astonishing act. A demon-possessed man, a man possessed by spirits of dead people, unclean spirits, a man who is unable to see or speak because of the power that these demons or ghosts have over him. And Jesus heals him with very little fanfare. Very little mucking around. Jesus heals him. Jesus casts the spirits out. Jesus demonstrates a greater power than that of the demons. And the people watching and seeing all this, they were rightly astonished. They were gobsmacked. Couldn't believe it, really. They were astonished at what they saw. And let me tell you, what they saw wasn't a one-off, okay? If you want to read Matthew's Gospel from the beginning, you'd see, by the time you reach chapter 12, our passage tonight, you would have seen that Jesus has regularly confronted and cast out demons. Not a one-off. He has demonstrated repeatedly his greater power over the spirits of death, unclean spirits, demons. And the people are always astonished. Because back there and then in Jesus' time, Exactly like here and now, people are afraid of death. People are afraid of the power of death. People are afraid of the shadow of death. And these demons, these unclean spirits, they stank of death. They stank of death. They were destructive. They were harmful. And yet, you see, right before these people, there stood a man that just a moment ago... He couldn't see, he couldn't speak because of the power these demons had over him and yet now he could. He could see now, he could speak now because Jesus simply healed him. And they were astonished. And in their astonishment, Matthew tells us, the crowd began to wonder, boy, could this Jesus, could he be the son of David? In other words, Could this Jesus, this guy here right in front of us, could he be the Christ? Could this Jesus, this guy right here, could he really be the Messiah? Could this Jesus, this guy, could he really be the king of the kingdom of heaven? People aren't sure. In fact, they're doubtful. Jesus obviously didn't look like the king they were expecting, but they ponder the possibility. And the crowd's reaction now is such a stark contrast to the reaction of the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders that we thought about last time, remember? Remember last time, their reaction to Jesus? You can see it if you glance back to verse 14. Back in verse 14, we left the Pharisees plotting how they might kill Jesus. And in our passage tonight, here they are again. They've seen, okay, they were there. They've seen the same astonishing act that the people saw, but whereas the people began wondering whether Jesus might be the promised king, the Pharisees instead, they saw the same thing and they decide to make an extraordinary and astonishing accusation. Point two verse 24. Have a look at it with me. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Folks, let me tell you, that is an astonishing accusation. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of somehow being in league with the devil, with the prince of demons, with the ruler of death. They had seen the very same thing that the crowd saw, and yet they've come to the conclusion that Jesus is somehow linked, somehow working with the devil. And it's not the first time they made this sort of accusation either. If you could glance back later at chapter 9 and verse 34, they say practically exactly the same thing. It's by the Prince of Demons this bloke drives out demons. It's an astonishing accusation. Here, okay, okay, here are the teachers of Israel. Here they are face to face with the Son of God himself. Here they are, they have just been a witness to the sign of the Son. A sign that speaks loudly and wonderfully that this king has come to take on, the, on death and the devil. A sign that speaks loudly and clearly of his victory over death and the devil, and they see it, and they accuse him of being in league with the devil. It's by the prince of demons this fellow drives out demons. Folks, I've got to tell you, it is always a tragedy, an utter tragedy, when someone can so suppress the truth about Jesus that is plainly on display before them. That is a tragedy, always is. But I need to tell you, Given the role of the Pharisees in their time and place, given the role of the Pharisees as the teachers of the people, given the privilege of the Pharisees, of their training and their role, given the opportunity of the Pharisees, of their close study of the scripture, the tragedy of their accusation right here on this page is great indeed. And Jesus makes two responses really to the Pharisees' accusation. Two responses, you've got them on your outline there in point three and point four. The first is to make an astonishing claim about himself. That's his first response. The second response is to make is to launch, really, an astonishing attack against the Pharisees. So we're going to look at one each in turn. Firstly, let's consider the astonishing claim that Jesus makes of himself in response. Point 3 and verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, "'Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined.' And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? We haven't reached the claim yet. Jesus is building towards his claim. First of all, he's clearing away the Pharisee's accusation. And his starting point really is just plain logic. He just wants to expose how stupid the Pharisee's assertion is. And you can see that's pretty obvious, isn't it? He's saying, look... If I am in league with Satan, why would I be acting against Satan? It's obvious logic. If he was really working for Satan, he wouldn't have healed the man who was demon-possessed. That would be ridiculous. Because everyone knows a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's like, come on, Pharisees, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And so Jesus makes another point on his way to uh, to making his astonishing claim. Verse 27 he says, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? See, it would seem, a bit trickier this one, but it would seem that there were other people at the time claiming to, dro- to drive out demons, including people connected to the Pharisees, people Jesus calls your People. So see Jesus' point? He's saying, look, if you accuse me of being in league with the devil because I cast out demons, what about the others? What about your guys? See, in very short time, the Pharisee's accusation is dismissed as stupid and illogical, and the way is now clear for Jesus to explain just how it is that he could cast out demons. Verse 28, here we go, ready? He says, But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember the people's question back in verse 23? Could this Jesus really be the king? Could this Jesus really be the king of the kingdom of heaven? It's answered here, he was. And he is. The kingdom of God has come with him. His healing of that demon-possessed man, Jesus says, there is evidence that the kingdom of God had arrived among them. For it was by the Spirit of God that such a healing took place. Because like we saw last time, last week, remember, Jesus, as the promised Christ, would be the servant of the Lord and he would bear the Spirit of God. Glance back at verse 18. We looked at it last week just to remind you. Verse 18. Remember, that's Matthew quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he's quoting from the bit that talks about God promising the coming of his servant king. Have a look at it with me. Verse 18 says, Here is my servant, whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. How was it that Jesus could cast out the demon? It's because he's the Christ. He's the king the servant king, the promised one, because he has the spirit of God and it's by the spirit of God that he drives out demons because there is no place for demons in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Christ. And he goes on with this claim in the next verse and says something fairly surprising, I think. He, he says that he has come as a robber. He's come as a powerful, righteous robber. He's come to break into the house of the devil and to rob him of his possessions. You can see it for yourself. Verse 29, Jesus says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. It's a bit of a parable, really. The devil is the strong man, the prince of demons. He's given many names in the Bible, you know. Uh, the Satan, the devil, the enemy, the accuser, the father of lies, the tester, the evil one, the adversary, Beelzebub. But all of the names speak of his mission to deceive and to damage and to destroy human people. To deceive and to damage and to destroy human people. And the Bible reveals to us that this world... This world, in judgment on our sin, this world, in judgment on our rebellion against God, this world has been handed over by God to Satan, to the devil. It's not as if, okay, I'm not saying that God is no longer in charge. Of course he is. God is still the ruler of his creation. But he has permitted the devil to have an enormous influence. And so in the Bible... The devil is described as the one who has led the whole world astray in Revelation chapter 12. He is des- the whole world is described as being under his control in 1 John chapter 5. Or in the words of Jesus there in verse 29, every single human person on their own, every single human person on their own are his possession, his prisoner, his possession. Folks, it's really important that we don't make the mistake, that we don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is only talking about people possessed by demons like the guy in this uh, account. Please do not think that they are the only ones who need to be liberated from the power of the devil. Because that would be to make a, a grave mistake concerning the devil. That would be to underestimate his influence enormously. Too often, you see, too often we look for the influence of the devil only in the extraordinary, in the weird, in the unexplainable. It's the same mistake that only sees the power of God in the miraculous and the extraordinary. Same error. But let me tell you, according to the Bible, the devil is most at work in the ordinary. The devil is most at work in the ordinary. In the ordinary life of someone pursuing something less than the kingdom of heaven. In the ordinary life of someone pursuing something other than the kingdom of heaven. In the ordinary and good life of the moral person happy to live up to their own standards. In in just the ordinary ignoring of God and his word and his values and his wisdom. In all of that ordinary rebellion, the devil is profoundly and powerfully at work. Everyone is his prisoner, his possession. For all of us, by instinct, follow the ways of this world. We've seen that in Ephesians chapter 2 in growth groups, haven't we? All of us, by instinct, follow the ways of of the devil, who is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You don't have to go very far to find people who belong to the devil. It's everyone on their own. And as the accuser, you see, the devil holds the power of death. It's like Amy helped us to see in the kid's spot. He accuses us of our sin, our sin that stinks of death and leads to death. He can always accuse us of our sin, you see, And call forth from God the penalty of our sin, which is death and condemnation. That's what he does. He is the prince of this world, and all of us on our own are his slaves. He is the strong man, and all of us on our own are his possessions in his house. And now check out again with me what Jesus claims for himself in verse 29. Have a look again at it. Jesus says, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. These guys have accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. And Jesus is saying, "The only way I could have done that is if I am stronger than the devil, if I have bound the strong man, then I can rob his house in healing that guy blind and mute because of his possession by those demons. Jesus was demonstrating clearly and unambiguously that he is the only one who is able to break into the strong man's house and rob him of his possessions. King Jesus is the one who is able to enter into the dominion of the devil, this broken and rebellious world, and he can liberate the captives of the devil. Extraordinary captives like the bloke in this account and ordinary captives as well, It's an astonishing claim that Jesus makes, but it's a wonderful claim, isn't it? It's a wonderful claim. He is the robber king, and he has come to steal his people from out of the powerful clutches of the devil. And like we've come to expect from Jesus, his defeat of the devil is very unexpected. He robs the house of the strong man in a very surprising way just got to keep reading Matthew and you get to the end of the gospel and you'll see it. Jesus dies on a cross and so defeats the devil and liberates his possessions, his prisoners. And you think, well, boy, what sort of robbery was that? That's like one of those things you see on a late night telly of bungled, bungled robberies, you know, the klutzes. Is that what it's like? What sort of defeat of the devil was that? That he dies. But you see, it works like this. Really important. Of all the people who have ever lived, Jesus never sinned. Of all the people who have ever lived, the devil could never accuse Jesus of anything. The devil never had a hold on Jesus. His whiteboard was always clean. And yet, you see, when Jesus died, he bore the penalty for the sins of his people. The sins of his people were judged in Jesus' death. He took our sins upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was condemned in our place so that we might be forgiven. And so you see, when a person comes to Jesus in faith and repentance, when a person submits to the authority of Jesus, when a person hands the loyalty of their life over to Jesus, the innocence of Jesus is granted to them. The righteousness of Jesus is granted to them. The whiteboard is clean. So you see that when the devil comes to accuse us, there's nothing left to accuse. You can't let him into your kingdom because of... There's nothing there. It's gone. It's all been judged. It's all been condemned in the person of Jesus. And in his resurrection, Jesus wins new life for his people. Life to the full. Life free from the fear of death and condemnation. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 2, it's expressed like this. Let me show you. Let me read it for you. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The robber king come to rob the strong man's house of his possessions. Is that not fantastic? I don't, I'm, I'm not getting a vibe of fantastic out there. Is it too hot in here? I think it's fantastic. It's unbelievably great. As the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And in his death and resurrection, that's exactly what he did. So that now you see, whenever anyone hears the call of the gospel, they are hearing the good news that the devil has been defeated, your sins can be forgiven, and eternal life can be yours. It's an astonishing claim that Jesus makes in response to the accusation of the Pharisees. We're going to come back to this claim in a moment. But before we do, we just need to consider the next movement, if you like, in Matthew's account of this event. Because remember I said Jesus' response had two prongs, if you like. He didn't just stop with his claim about himself. He goes on to attack the thinking of the Pharisees, and it's an astonishing attack. Point 4 and verse 30. Let's have a look at it. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me Scatters, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now that's a tricky pronouncement by Jesus, isn't it? No two ways about it. That's a tricky one. It's one that's caused much confusion and anxiety, particularly among those who know that they need to be forgiven. The possibility that this particular sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the possibility that that could not be forgiven is terrifying. And yet, and yet, here it is, it's plainly spoken by Jesus. But please notice with me who it is plainly spoken to. Jesus speaks it against the Pharisees. He speaks it against the very ones who have just seen with their own eyes the king of the kingdom of heaven drive out demons by the spirit of God. They have seen it, and yet they have attributed that power, the power of the spirit, to the devil himself. That astonishing accusation is evidence of their hearts being totally hardened against the truth of Jesus. It's not that they weren't sure. The people weren't sure. Back in verse 23, they were wondering whether Jesus could be the king. Could this guy be the son of David? But that isn't what Jesus is calling blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It could be that the people's reaction is what Jesus describes in verse 32 as speaking a word against the son of man. That's forgivable. With repentance, but the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they are much more hard set against Jesus. If you are not, if you are not with Jesus, then you are against him. And the Pharisees' hearts are set hard against Jesus, as hard as flint. It is impossible for them to be forgiven because they are rejecting utterly, they are rejecting absolutely the only one who could save them. In fact, they are accusing their only saviour and king of being in league with the very one they need to be rescued from. To quote a book that I was reading during the week, It's, it's this. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. That's what they're doing. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. The Pharisees look at the only one who could save them and they say he is of the devil. They condemn themselves to die of thirst. And so Jesus continues in his attack uh, in the verses that follow. See, in verse 33, he says, they are a bad tree with bad fruit. Verse 34, he says, they are a brood of vipers who, because of their evil, cannot say anything good for their words express what's in their hearts. And so their words will condemn them on the final day. It's an astonishing attack. And let me tell you, friends, all of that remains true for us. We've seen it each week. This is not something new to our passage tonight. We've seen it each week. Our response to Jesus matters. And to reject Jesus is a very serious decision that you must weigh very, very carefully and very, very somberly. Because as Jesus claimed, he is the only one who can rob the house of the strong man, the devil. He's the only one who can set free his prisoners, And we see in his death and his resurrection, that's exactly what he's done. And so you see, because of Jesus' victory, the devil and the underworld, they remain real, but they are not to be feared. No question mark. They are not to be feared. Let me tell you one of the last things that Jesus speaks in Matthew's gospel, we can read to the end. He says... After he's risen from the grave, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. And that includes authority over the devil. For Jesus in his death has defeated the devil. And when he returns, he will destroy him completely and eternally. But it's true that for a time now, Jesus' return is delayed. His return is delayed so as to give people time to repent and to come to him and seek safety in him and to be rescued by him from the house of the strong man. But the time is short. And because the time is short, the devil now makes war against the people of Jesus. But he is not to be feared because his teeth have been pulled. His teeth have been pulled. He has nothing left to accuse us of. Our king has defeated him by his death in our place. And so in the New Testament, we find warnings such as this in James chapter 4. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Simple as that. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we are encouraged to take our stand against him, against the devil. But our stand is always made up of normal Christian life, faith, salvation, gospel preaching and prayer, the ordinary things which are in fact, of course, extraordinary, but you know what I mean. I've got to tell you, folks, in the Bible, Christians are never, ever instructed to engage directly with the devil and his followers. Christians are never instructed or encouraged to perform exorcisms, for example or be involved in these deliverance ministries that we read of. We resist the devil, okay, not by facing the devil, but by facing Christ, our King. That's how you resist the devil. You turn away from him and you face Jesus, our victorious King. Let me quote to you from this book that I'm recommending to you about Christian warfare and uh, some really helpful words. Let me read it to you. It says this, The Christian fight takes place with different weapons and a different strategy. Our weapon is the gospel of Christ, and our strategy is to remember it, speak it, believe it, cling to it, and pray in response to it. It may seem very different from the weapons and warfare of this world, but that's good. Remember who owns this world. If we are attracted to dramatic, direct encounters with the world of evil, because of their dramatic, direct nature seems to suggest great power, then we should beware. This is very likely a weapon of this world dressed up in a spiritual disguise. The gospel will always look weak and helpless... What is a mere word against such displays of power? What are a few mumbled prayers given in normal human language compared with dramatic spiritual pyrotechnics? But these are our true and only spiritual weapons. Our spiritual warfare begins and ends by the gospel reminding us of Jesus' victory. Whatever we are facing, whatever fears afflict our soul, we are to remember Jesus And his victory on our behalf. Friends, Jesus, the king, the robber king, came to rob the devil of his possessions. And he did. He's bound the strong man. He's robbed his house and he continues to rob his house as his his kingdom continues to advance as his people cling to the gospel and proclaim the gospel and live by the gospel and pray the gospel. And you know, when the people saw Jesus' power, remember they asked, they said, could this be the son of David, the king? They weren't sure. But we can be sure tonight. We can be absolutely sure he is the king. And we should be absolutely determined to follow him and serve him with everything that we have for all of our days. For he is the king and he sets us free and he gives us life to the full. And he deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of both comfort and warning tonight. Comfort, Father, that Jesus is indeed stronger than the strong man devil. And we thank you, Father, that he has conquered the power of death in his death and his resurrection. Thank you, Father, that he has removed the teeth of the devil in taking away our sin. Thank you for his power that was used with such mercy for us. But, Father, there's warning here too, of course, for those of us that we know, perhaps even those of us in this room, who are yet to submit to Jesus as king, yet to be rescued. And we're mindful very much of them, Father, and mindful of our place in wanting to tell the good news, to proclaim the gospel, that the devil has been defeated, that our sins can be forgiven that eternal life can be ours. Father, fill us with zeal, fill us with confidence and conviction about these things. Father, wherever we are right at this moment, please shape our thinking so it more uh, rightly conforms to the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, a great King. We thank you, Father, that he stands before the throne of heaven as our Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.